You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Before we get to that, we have so many visitors with us this morning that, um, you know, this morning's message really is a 13th message in a series. And as I thought about this morning, I thought, well, I better do some kind of review so I can bring uh, some of you up to speed as to where we've been. Otherwise, you're going to be, what in the world is going on here? We don't want that. Uh, Paul begins, if you, if you will, if you look with me to Romans 1, uh, Paul begins the, the book, his letter to the Romans very simply. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of who? For the gospel of God, uh, which he has promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning what? His son. Yeah. And from there we learn that the gospel is whose gospel? It's God's gospel. It's God's message. And um, what does it concern? It concerns his son. So the gospel, we learn already in, in three verses that it's God's message and that it concerns and is centered on God's Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you look down to verses 16 and 17, these verses are very important uh, to Paul's letter in the respect that they set forth the theme, if you will. Paul will expand on verses 16 and 17. He writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, which is whose gospel? It's God's gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power. Paul uses a word that we're familiar with. He uses the word dunamai. It's a word we get dynamite from, and we translate power in our English Bibles. It's a powerful message. It's God's message. It's centered on Jesus. Verse 17, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, there Paul sets forth really the beginning, if you will, uh, the introduction of his letter. And then starting with verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul then sets forth what we call the bad news of the gospel. Uh, it's a very tempting uh, to skip this passage, uh, you'll notice that it starts with the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, one uh, uh, prominent theologian used to tell his seminary students that uh, man is very bad and God is very mad. We don't like to think in those terms, uh, it's uncomfortable for us, um, but it, when we skip chapter 1, verses 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, then we have to ask ourselves, what do we need saved from? What do we need a Savior for? And people are asking that question uh, because the church has skipped these passages. You'll notice in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain, why? Because God has shown it. What is Paul talking about? He's, he's saying in these verses that we all know that God exists. And he's saying that we know this because we can look around. And 
I'm not necessarily encouraging you to look around out the windows and uh, begin to daydream out the windows, but uh, uh, you can look around and you can see that the, something is keeping this world moving. Uh, how many have teenagers in the house? Does anybody have teenagers in the house? Okay, we just have one. Well, how many have children in the house? Because this doesn't just apply to children. You see, children, it's their job to run around and turn every light in the house on, right? And it's the parent's job to say, listen, these lights, they don't stay lit by themselves. It costs money to keep them on. When you leave the room, turn the light out. Well, nothing works by itself. And that's Paul's argument. We can look and we can see from this world that there, certainly there's a God. But the problem is, verse 21, although uh, they knew God, uh, although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Uh, onto the contrary, in our unbelief, we, we function in, and live in such a way as uh, to suggest that God doesn't exist at all. Uh, we, we, live, we like to sing with Frank Sinatra, I'm going to do it my way. And uh, uh, we do things our way instead of God's way. And uh, this has indeed brought, him, brought us a mess. Uh, Paul uh, spends this long section and I, I turn your attention to it again. You know, when the biblical authors write, if you're familiar with Scripture, you'll notice that when God inspires the biblical author, um, he does so with a certain economy of words. He, he's not like preachers who ramble on about things all the time. Um, he does so with an economy of words. It's amazing how much God can say with so little words, yet so much time and so many words are spent Developing that which could be summarized in chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, if you look there, you'll see the summary of all of this is that there is none who are righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. In short, what Paul is saying is that in order to be able to stand in God's presence, and in order to be able to enter into his kingdom, we need a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. The Apostle Paul didn't have it. Uh, with all of his meticulousness and trying to follow the, the, the laws of God, um, Paul didn't have it. And uh, we can be rest assured that we don't have it either in and of ourselves. This is the bad news of the gospel. Listen, friends, Jesus should not be thought of as an exercise program or a diet that we can maybe get on with for a little while and then kind of uh, fall away from. We don't need Jesus that way. Jesus should be thought more of like a pulse. If you don't have a pulse, you've got a problem. We need Jesus like we need a pulse. There is a righteousness required to enter into his heaven, and it's a righteousness that we do not have. And that brings us to the good news, which begins in chapter 3 and verse 21. Notice what Paul writes there, but now. I've been making a lot of those words. But now. But now. Notice the word righteousness. There is a righteousness of God that is being made available. It's being made manifest. It's being made known. It's a righteousness that's not ours. It's a righteousness that belongs to Christ. 
It's a righteousness that was, that was uh, uh, earned by Jesus, merited by Christ, accomplished by Christ during his earthly ministry. And that perfect righteousness without spot or wrinkle in any way is now being made available. And this is the good news of the gospel. We, we're lacking a righteousness to get in. We don't have it. First, first thing is to confess of that. Second thing is with the hands of faith to take the righteousness that's being offered to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, verse 21, chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, but are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, if you've come to believe that your condition is as Paul has described, then this should sound like good news to you. If you have not come to believe that your condition is as Paul has described, well, it's not so good, is it? It may fall flat. Verse 25, God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This fancy word propitiation, we spent quite a bit of time studying. All it means is God, in Christ Jesus, God has averted his wrath away from us. He has averted his anger away from us. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, man is very bad, but God is very mad. In Christ Jesus, he goes to the cross. What does he go to the cross to do? One of the things he goes to the cross to do is to avert the anger of God so that the anger of God is taken away. There's another word in this text, the word redemption, uh, redeem, if you will. Uh, uh, what does this word redeem? It's to be redeemed out of the, the slavery, if you will, of unbelief. Out of the slavery of unbelief. When we are encapsulated in the slavery of unbelief, we can hear a message like this and not even realize how bad we need it. In fact, I can attest to you for many years myself in my own life, if I might offer just a, a bit of testimony about myself. I, I, I lived for years lost. And I was so lost that I didn't realize I was lost. And that is the condition. But the gospel is the power of God, which opens us up, which opens up our hearts. Now, in verse 27 and following to the end of the chapter, Paul begins to take this news, that this, this news, this good news of a righteousness that's being made known by God, that's available by faith, and he begins to apply it. In verse 27, he asks the question, what becomes of our boasting? He answers the question, it's excluded. Uh, in the original, it means it's shut out. Uh, there's no place for boasting. We have no merit or achievement to boast of. We never will. And that's why the Apostle Paul elsewhere in his letters say, well, if you're going to boast, boast in the one who has achievement and merit. Boast in Christ Jesus. If I am to boast, I will boast in Christ. Now, when we come to chapter 4, Paul is going to expand on that. Uh, he says in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And last week we took a look at that. Uh, we looked at that quite closely. 
Some of you know uh, about the life of Abraham, and you may be thinking uh, one of the most famous stories about the life of Abraham is when he is called to take his son Isaac, the son who he waited decades to have, the son of the promise, and he is called to take him to Mount Moriah and do what? Sacrifice him. Now, what does Abraham do? Does he dilly-dally, try to put it off, think, well, maybe the Lord will forget? We know the story. He immediately does what? Takes his son up to Mount Moriah. And in an extraordinary act of obedience, he goes through with it all the way to the point that he has the dagger in his hand. This is recorded for us in Genesis 22. And he's about to plunge the dagger into the object of his love. To be obedient to God, God calls it off at the last minute. Now, if anyone had something to boast about, if anyone had any merit or achievement upon which they could boast, I would say it's Abraham. As I look at my own obedience in my own life, it's quite puny in comparison to that. Am I alone? Does Abraham have anything to boast about? Let's ask Paul. Does Abraham have anything to boast about? What's Paul say? Not before God. I think I can hear him say not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the, in the Greek, the word counted, legizomai. We went through that last week. We went through the various meanings of legizomai. What does legizomai mean? And why is that important? The, the, one of the meanings of legizomai means to charge to an account. Uh, we do this, you know. We, uh, how, how many have to get up and work tomorrow? Raise your hand. Okay, why do you do that? Do you, why? It's to gain a paycheck, right? Hopefully, during, at the end of the pay period, you're going to get this little piece of paper, correct? And maybe you won't. Maybe, maybe there's a direct deposit that's going to take place. But what you're hoping for is that the amount that you've agreed to labor for will be charged to your account. That's what this word means, legizomai. Charged to the account. Verse 3 tells us that Abraham acquired righteousness that he didn't have by believing in God. And by believing in God, this righteousness was charged. A righteousness that he did not have was charged to his account. Paul clarifies this. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing. What blessing? The blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then quoting from Psalm 32, which is a song of repentance, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Why? Because of the righteousness, accomplishments, and merits of Christ Jesus. And only because of that. That's why it's good news. It's life-changing good news. Verse 9, you'll notice that Paul, he's very fond of asking questions and answering them. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This is really where our text begins this morning. Uh, verses 9 through 12, if you will. 
Um, let, let me just read these verses. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, which we're going to spend some time with this morning. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse 11, but before we get to that, the context, what is Paul asking here? He's talking about the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's making a contrast between those who have underwent circumcision and those who have not went, underwent circumcision. Okay, this is shorthand of making a, a contrast between the Jews and those who are not Jews. Between uh, those who are Jewish uh, and the rest of the world. Okay, uh, what about the rest of the world? Okay, is this blessing only for folks of Jewish descent? That's what Paul wants to uh, develop. Well, he starts by asking another question. How was it counted to him? That is, how was this righteousness that Abraham received? How was it counted to him? Was it before he had been circumcised? It was not um, uh, before, I'm sorry, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. If we take a look at Genesis and we look at the life of Abraham, uh, begins in really chapter 11, if you will, goes through chapter 25. But if you look at chapter 15, uh, you know, the quotes that, that the apostle is, is calling on here is from chapter 15 and verse 6. Namely, that in chapter Genesis 15, verse 6, we learn that Abraham believed God. He believed the promises of God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham is not circumcised until chapter 17. Now, the scriptures are not always chronological, uh, but in this case, uh, they are. Uh, so Paul's argument is, listen, Abraham is already righteous before he is circumcised. That's the argument. And I always love it when the author tells us what his purpose is because of a, lot of, a lot of my time is spent in my study trying to discover what is the purpose that the Holy Spirit had for this particular passage or that particular passage. But if you look halfway through verse 11, uh, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What is Paul up to? First, he's speaking to a Jewish audience and he wants to make his case. And if you were speaking to this audience and you wanted to make your case, you could do no better than to make your case from Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Uh, so uh, the apostle Paul is making his case from the life 
of Abraham. And second to that, and I'm not sure it's really second to that, but I would say rivaling that if you wanted to make your case, there really are, there are a number of individuals we could look at, but uh, Abraham and David, uh, David, who is the most famous king, the, the greatest king of Israel, uh, the apostle Paul has already set forth uh, David as an example as well. So Paul is making his case here. Now, now he, he, he's speaking to, uh, to Jewish Christians, if you will, those who will walk in the ways of Abraham. In other words, those who have embraced Christ and are walking uh, with Christ. Uh, they would have no problem understanding Abraham as being their father. Uh, but the rest of the world was not allowed to call Abraham a father. You didn't do that. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is what we embrace in that children's song. You know the Vacation Bible children's song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons. it goes? Anybody Can anybody sing it? Father Abraham has many sons. And you know what I'm talking about. You didn't do that. You didn't call Abraham your father if you were of Gentile descent. The Apostle Paul's changing that. He's saying, no, Abraham is the father of all the faithful, whether they be circumcised or not. Because whether you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised, the way into heaven, into God's presence, is the same. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, having said all of that, let's spend the rest of our time looking at verse 11. Uh, it, 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 it has a lot to say um, concerning what we're here to do this morning, namely baptism. And someone might say, well, okay, this has a lot to say about baptism. I don't recall reading about baptism in this particular passage. Um, you know, if you were to study baptism this way, and this is, this, this is commonly how I can remember doing this once upon a time. I wanted to learn about baptism. So what I, what I did was I got a concordance out. Everybody know what a concordance is? It's one of those books that, that uh, lists every word that's used in the Bible. And uh, you could look up whatever word you want to study. And I remember looking up baptism. You look up baptism and you say, okay, I'm going to go to all of the verses that have baptism in them. And by the time I'm done studying all these verses, then I'll, I'll have done a thorough study of baptism. Does that sound reasonable? Well, it's, it's, it's a reasonable start. But it is woefully incomplete. Because it presupposes that the Bible only talks about baptism when baptism appears in the sentence. And that's certainly not the case. There are a lot of principles upon which baptism is founded. Now, before I go any further, I also want to say this. In this room, there are probably at least three different views on baptism. And uh, some of us have opposing views this morning. And let me speak to that. Um, I... I I believe in what we call pedo-baptism. Uh, the ARP Church, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, we're the only congregation of its kind in this, in this area. There are some in Pittsburgh. We're not affiliated with any of the local Presbyterian churches here. But uh, we believe in what is known as pedo-baptism, infant baptism. Now, some of you may be of the perspective of what is known as believer's baptism or credo-baptism. And if that's the case, there's a little bit of tension this morning, and I understand that. When I went to seminary, I went to seminary with folks who were credo-baptists. Uh, they, they had a position on baptism that was different than mine. 
And we used to debate, you know, in the friendly way. We used to, we used to debate. But one thing I would never do, and I'm thankful that they would never do, is we would never part company. That's a secondary, it's an important issue, but it's a secondary issue. If you, if you disagree with what I'm about to say, that, that's okay. You know, that, that's okay. Um, I still want to embrace you. If you're in Christ Jesus, I want to embrace you with, with the love of Christ as best as I'm able. And I pray that you will be able to do the same with me. And I tell everybody, if you want to worship here, you don't have to adopt this, this particular position. You can listen to, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating, probably a year's worth of my sermons and not really hear much about Presbyterianism, the ARP, uh, the Reformed faith. I don't, that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is what's on the bulletin. Uh, You'll notice that on the front, we're gathering a family who loves and serves God through Jesus Christ and leads others in kind. Uh, That's what's important to me. Don't think that I, I don't think doctrine's important. I do think it's very important. Um, I don't want to give you that impression. But what I'm trying to say is, uh, what's most important to me is that you're in Christ Jesus. That's what's most important to me. This is a secondary issue that we're going to get into here. Now, let's get into it. I'll share with you where we come from as a church. Verse 11, we're told that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, there's a couple of things we need to look at here. First of all, notice that Paul is using the word sign. The Bible uses the word sign all over the place. You know, you you read through the Bible, you come to Exodus chapter 4, and uh, Moses is being called to go to Pharaoh to uh, ask him or demand of him to let his entire slave population go free. And Moses has spent time in in Pharaoh's palace, and he understands that Pharaoh's got this massive free slave labor building his precious cities for him, he's not going to be real excited about just letting everybody go. So Moses says to the Lord, I need some kind of sign. Give me some kind of sign. And and some of us are old enough to have saw the movie, you know, the old Charles Nesta movie. Uh, uh, Moses, I mean, when they throw the, the uh, when, when Moses throws the staff down, what happens to the staff? It becomes a what? Becomes this big, huge snake, yeah. And then he's instructed to grab it by the tail, and then what happens to it? It returns to a, a, a staff. Um, then Moses is told to put his hand in his cloak, right? And he pulls it out, and what happens? It's leprous. Then he had to have been frightening. And then God says, Well, put your hand back in, pull it back out, it's clean. Also, he instructs him to take some water from the Nile and turn it into blood. These are signs, if you will. Now, they're all over the Bible. You go to the New Testament and Jesus in John chapter 2. At the wedding, what does Jesus do? He turns water into what? Into wine. And John tells us this was the first of his signs. And throughout John's uh, gospel, in fact, John's gospel is in many ways organized Uh, by these signs, if you will. Um, Another sign that I think is very relevant to us is after God has flooded the earth, the entire earth, as the waters reside, God comes to Noah and he makes a covenant with him. Actually, he makes a covenant with the earth and he gives a sign 
of that covenant. Which is what? It's the rainbow. Now, what's the purpose of the rainbow? The purpose of the rainbow is to witness to the promise that God has made. Which is what? He'll never flood the entire earth at one time again, right? So that when we see a rainbow, uh, as we're dazzled, some of them are just just wonderfully uh, 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 dazzling in appearance. Uh, that is to remind us it's a sign. It's meant to, inc- to strengthen our faith, to encourage us that God has promised never to flood the entire earth again. In the same way, uh, God gives circumcision to Abraham. Now, what is circumcision? Genesis seventeen eleven. Circumcision, we're told, is a sign of the covenant. In many ways, the same as the rainbow is a sign of the covenant. Okay? He's given a sign of the covenant. Okay, so we have a sign. Verse 11, Romans 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Now, what is meant by a seal? Um, You know, in ancient times when monarchs would draft a letter, they would stick wax on it and they would take a ring, typically a signet ring, and they would stick their ring in the wax seal in order to authenticate the letter. Today we do the same thing at the notary's office. If you have a document that needs to be authenticated, you go down to the notary and the notary has this little stamp. You know, mom used to be a notary. She had a stamp, you know, you could take the stamp and you squeeze it and it makes this impression on the paper, which uh, authorizes and gives uh, authority to the paper. But there's other ways. Uh, Alex's guitar here is a, is a, cl- a classic example. Now, this is what we call a Les Paul. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, that's a great instrument. That's a fantastic instrument. There are many companies out there that make Les Paul style guitars. But this is a Gibson Les Paul. Uh, It's the real deal. And there's a little logo at the very top of it that says Gibson, and that logo is the seal. It authenticates it. And we find seal being used in the New Testament. In John chapter 6, for instance, I think it's like verse 27, where Jesus says that God has set his seal upon me. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us that a believer, when they come to faith in Christ Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a seal, if you will. There's the seal of apostleship, if you will. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are his seal. Why? Because they've come to faith through his ministry. Uh, He preaches the truth. So here, Abraham has this sign of circumcision as a seal Uh, as a sign and a seal. Now let's ask one more question of this. It's a sign and seal of what? Now, the common answer to that question is it's a sign and seal of Abraham's faith. That's the common answer. I would submit to you that that's not the right answer. Uh, Feel free to disagree with me if you want. But um, if we look at the verse closely, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the what? The righteousness that he had by faith. I think there's a better way of understanding this. And let's keep in mind the covenant sign of the rainbow, for instance. What's it point to? Points to God's promise never to flood the earth. 
That's what it points to. It doesn't point to the fact that we believe God will never flood the earth. It points to the fact that God said he'll never flood the earth. It's a covenant promise. Now, if we look at sometime this afternoon or whenever you have time, read the story of Abraham. You'll read, he's been given this promise of a son and you'll read where Abraham, you know, sometimes we read these Bible, we think, oh, these these biblical saints, they never wavered in their faith. They never waffled in their faith. They never did any of this stuff in their faith. You know, well, actually Abraham did struggle in his faith. That's this whole issue with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. He took it into his own hands, waiting on Isaac. He did waffle. And I think if you look at the placements, one of the things I always try to do when I'm studying the scriptures is not just try to determine what a particular passage means and what it says, but how it functions after what's before it and before what comes after it. In other words, what? how does this... If this was missing, what would be missing from the testimony? And you see Genesis 17, where God gives Abraham circumcision. What is he doing? He's giving him something to strengthen his weak faith with. Now, let's apply that. Abraham finds himself in a weak moment. And circumcision is meant to strengthen his faith. Now, if circumcision is pointing to his faith, how is that going to strengthen him? I fail to see how. And let's 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 think of let's suppose we were Israelites many centuries later and we're waffling in our faith. And if we believe that circumcision is a sign of our personal faith, when we are waffling and struggling, how is that going to strengthen us? After all, couldn't we say, well, you know, not everybody that was circumcised really proved to be faithful. You know, there's Ishmael. And you know, those two scoundrels, uh, Phineas and Hophni, you know, Eli's sons. Boy, they were some rascals, weren't they? They're the ones that kind of come to my mind first. They were circumcised. Chief priests and scribes who crucified Jesus undoubtedly were circumcised. If this is a sign of personal faith, then what happens? How do I know I'm not like them? How do I know at the end of the day... I'm not going to be like them. I don't see how that strengthens you. But there's another way you can understand this. And I would submit to you that this will strengthen and encourage you. If circumcision is pointing to God's promise. Well, now it suddenly strengthens. We live in a day where everything's about us. You know, we're 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 individuals. You know, we uh, we don't do things as groups anymore. It's just me and Jesus. You know, it's me and my faith. And we read that into the passage, but I don't think that's there in this passage. I think what's there in this passage is God has given Abraham a sign so that when he's waffling on his faith, he can look at the sign of circumcision. and It can remind him that namely God has promised you to I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to make you the father of many. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through you, all the world, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. You see, it's meant to lead to the promise. The same way the Passover. What's the Passover supposed to remind them of? It's a promise. It's a promise of, listen, find a lamb that meets the specifications of the Lord. Slaughter the lamb. Take the blood. Paint it on the doorpost. And the angel of destruction will pass over you. There's a promise made. After uh, the angel of destruction passes over, they were to continue to do that as a sacrament of the Old Testament. What did it remind them of? Of their personal faith? No, it reminded them of the promise. 
God passed over us. And the Lord's Supper, I think it's easy. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the lamb. He comes and he fulfills the Passover. The Passover is inappropriate now for us, now that the lamb has come. He gives us the Lord's Supper. What does the Lord's Supper point to? It points to the promise. If we put our faith and trust in Christ, he has really broken, shed his blood for us. Now, what about baptism? What about baptism? Well, baptism, as I understand it, as we understand it, is a continuation of circumcision. Circumcision with the the cutting off of the foreskin. It stood really for three things. Actually, we could probably say more than that, but for simplification, it stood for cleansing. You read all over the Old Testament, the uncircumcised are the polluted, right? The circumcised are the pure. So it stood for cleansing. It stood for consecration. Those who were circumcised are God's people. They belong to God. And progeneration, that is begetting of children, of, of, of uh, procreating, of being fruitful and multiplying, uh, it stood for that. By its very nature, only the males were to be circumcised and males from eighth days and older. You see, we're not looking. Abraham couldn't have been necessarily looking to the infants that would have been in his household for faith because he had no need to because the sign wasn't wasn't about that. The sign was about God's promise. So the infants, eight days and older, all the way up were to receive the sign of circumcision and it pointed to progeneration let me show you one verse one thing that we really need keep your place in Romans 4 and look at Malachi with me I want to show you something and and those our young parents this morning hold on to this in Malachi chapter 2 starting with verse 13 and you know we really need a theology of children we really, I, I think uh, in preparing for this morning, I thought to myself, I need to preach some messages that focus on a theology of children. How are we to understand children? Verse 13, Mal- Malachi 2, verse 13, page 802. It's the last book of the Old Testament. In verse 13, the, the people of God are being indicted. This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So they're offering sacrifices and to their measure of faith, they believe God's not accepting them. There's something wrong. What is wrong? Verse 14, the Lord was witness between me and you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Here we see marriage as a covenant. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the what was the one God seeking? And this is my point. Listen to this question. What was the one God seeking? Answer, anyone. Godly offspring. What's God up to? Godly offspring he's raising his church he's building his church isn't he circumcision is given to the children of believing households now the similarities between circumcision and baptism are remarkable there are some discontinuity there is some 
But the similarities is remarkable. What is baptism? Baptism stands for, it, it symbolizes the cleansing, does it not? The washing away of sins. Paul says that in his uh, dialogue as he's on trial at the end of Acts, Acts 22, maybe verse, I don't know, 16 or somewhere in there. Um, it stands for cleansing. It also stands for consecration. Jesus says to baptize in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's consecration. To be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to be brought into union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It symbolizes this union. Okay? Is everybody with me so I know it's long? It's longer than I wanted it to be. Okay. So what are we saying here? Let's look at verse 11, Romans 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteous they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. I would submit to you that baptism actually symbolizes the same thing. It replaces circumcision. And what does it symbolize? As we baptize each other, we're not saying that these little hearts are regenerate that these little hearts have come to true saving faith. We, uh, but, but I want to make sure you understand something. I'm not saying that they are. But I would never say that they aren't either. I, I read all kind of literature that, that comes right on and says, well, the infants cannot be regenerate. And I think to myself, how can we limit God's hand that way? We have biblical warrant. John the Baptist was an infant and he was regenerate. If God should so choose, again, he uses means for sure. He usually uses means. That's the common, ordinary thing. But I do not know that little Aiden back there in Becca's arms is not regenerate already. And neither does anyone else in this room. But what I do know is that God has given Aiden to Becca and Chris. who are believing parents. He has been born into this covenant community. And that's why we apply the covenant sign. Again, if you disagree with me, that's quite all right, please. Um, if you feel your temperature rising in any way, I, my wife went and got some ice, and uh, it wasn't for that purpose, but... We can, we can act really fast. I just want you to laugh because you can, you're, you're just allowed to disagree with me on this, okay? My favorite preacher, if you want to talk about preachers who are alive, my favorite preacher is a Reformed Baptist preacher. And I love him. My favorite theologians are not Baptist theologians, but my favorite preachers are. I love Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. I just disagree with him on this point. And there are other points I disagree with him on. Um, but that, there's he's still my favorite preacher. Okay? At this point, I'd like to ask our young couples to come forward.